So tech had its day in Washington this week, and things got heated. Uh, Mr. Bezos, our investigation... Mr. Chairman, we have the email. There is no... Excuse me, not your time. Jordan, you do not have the time. Be, please but, be respectful but, but, of your colleague. Someone directly she controls directly. the time. Put your mask on. That was Representative Jim Jordan fighting with Democratic colleagues during the tech hearings on Wednesday. The moment actually had little to do with the topic at hand, whether four major tech companies, Facebook, Apple, Google, and Amazon, were acting as monopolies. But it gave a sense as to how loaded this topic has become. For the CEOs of these companies, who all testified in front of the House Antitrust Subcommittee, the findings by regulators could have major implications for their futures. This is Tom Dotan, reporter at The Information, and I cover these remarkable hearings, along with my colleagues Alex Heath and Chris Stern. We've been following the topic for a while at The Information. Some of the stories we've written about the companies were brought up by lawmakers during the hearing. In this episode of The Information's 411, I talked to Alex and Chris about the nature of the cases against each of the tech companies, why Mark Zuckerberg's experience doing this type of thing before gave him a leg up over his compatriots, and what comes next. Then, my co-host Corey Weinberg speaks to Anissa Gardizi about GoPuff, a startup that delivers you convenience store items like beer and ice cream. It's taken off, which has meant more delivery cars on the road, and to the people who live near its distribution centers, more traffic and noise. So that's today's episode. Before I get to Corey and Anissa, though, let's start off with my conversation with Alex and Chris. All right, guys, so before we go too far into the the meat of the hearing, I, I just want to get a broader understanding of, like, how this thing came to be. Because just from my perspective, it seemed like all of a sudden one day we got alerts that there was going to be a big deal tech hearing happening in Congress. So, Chris, could you just give us a bit of background on, like, what is the origin story of what we all watched yesterday? Sure. Well, about a year ago, um, Cicilline and the House Antitrust Com- Subcommittee launched this investigation of the four big tech companies. And that was simultaneously everybody. The FTC was launching one. DOJ was launching one. It was very trendy in Washington to launch your own probe. Then the state folks got into it. And um, and the goal all along was to have a hearing at the end with the, with the four CEOs of the companies that were being investigated, Facebook, Apple, Google, and Amazon. And so this this hearing was the culmination of that year-long probe the one sort of thing that really jumped it was um that did contribute to momentum of this hearing happening was the wall street journal story a little while ago pointing out that third parties um that amazon did indeed collect data from third parties and and used it to launch competing products so all of that came to a head and um that's why we are where we were yesterday so if we had to break down, you know, what the from the most good faith uh, sense, the the antitrust case against each company is as it sort of played out during the hearing. Here was my takeaway from it. And I'd be interested in all of your opinions. So for Amazon, right, it was this, you know, usage of data from third party sellers on the platform to inform its own strategy and the products that Amazon makes the in-house kind of you know Amazon basics products. Um, for Facebook, I would say, you know, and it obviously broke down on party lines, it would seem like the the argument against them was like they have predatory acquisition uh, strategies that are at odds with current antitrust law. And then Google, boy, it just seemed like, and this is, you know, clearly the work of many tech companies that have been lobbying against Google for a while. It would seem like it was Google search results are skewed in favor of Google-owned properties, and it crowds out any other, you know, web properties that you know, heretofore had been successful before Google kind of rejiggered its algorithm and search results page to favor its own products. 
Is that basically what you saw there? I'd add to that the whole discussion of advertising and whether or not Google controls um, both the buy side, the sell side, and creates the market itself for digital ads. And that's very um, important to publishers who claim that Google's eviscerated their business. And I, you know, it, it, Alex and I were talking about this earlier, is that that Representative Jayapal of Washington did, did a very good job of running the hearing through the details of that and challenging Google on those issues. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a fascinating topic because it's probably the one that's most in the weeds, I'd imagine, uh, of all the different ones, right? It, it's hard to see the material impact. I understand an acquisition. I understand third-party sellers you know, being crowded out by Amazon, but that one seems a little bit harder to grasp for the layperson, don't you think? Yeah, it's very difficult, very intricate, but it's also antitrust lawyers love it and antitrust law likes this case. Uh, this 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 example because the markets are very well defined like there's a very good understanding of the advertising market and that's often a difficult thing to pursue in antitrust especially with digital platforms where there's not a lot of um, experience taking folks to court over their market power I'll add a broader point to that and say that yeah the details are what matter in all of these cases um, because the potential actual, you know, actual antitrust violations, maybe with the exception of Facebook, are pretty complicated. And I think Apple is a good example of that. Uh, you know, lastly, their use of uh, the App Store and how they collect fees from developers and have different tiers uh, for different kinds of developers in different instances. We really saw lawmakers struggle to understand that, I think, in the hearing. And Tim Cook ultimately, you know, the CEO of Apple kind of ultimately came away looking probably, I think, pretty good compared to everyone else. That leads into my next question is, how do you think they fare? This is obviously a performance. There's a spectacle aspect of it. It was all done remotely over WebEx, which, by the way, they came out a real loser. I know you would think that they would have, you know, uh, higher quality streams. I guess that's the time we're living in. So who do you think came out looking pretty good? We wrote in our story that we said Zuckerberg uh, came out looking the best among the CEOs. I, I don't know if I agree, but let me uh, def defend your d defend that statement. I think he's done this multiple times. You know, he's done these these congressional grillings at least three times in the last uh, few years. And certainly, if if someone do you copy do you copy here, your competitors, Congresswoman? We've certainly adapted features. He knows kind of how this format works. He understands that he's going to get talked over. And he has, by this point, the behind all this is Facebook is under a, a boycott uh, from a lot of big advertisers and civil rights groups. And he's definitely learned how to give, I guess you could, you could say non-answers uh, about Facebook's you know, content moderation policies. And I think that showed in this hearing. Yeah, one of the things that uh, he also maybe was in, you know, the most partisanly, he was in the most, you know, difficult position partisan-wise because you really have both sides taking antitrust out of it, which we'll talk about that in a second. You know, there are a lot of people on the Democratic side who think that Facebook was too lax uh, in terms of monitoring fake news and, and, you know, Russian interference and all of that. And then there are people on the conservative side who say that they are censoring, shadow banning, you name it. Uh, you know, conservative voices on the platform. All right, who do you think did the worst uh, among the four? This was Bezos's first real public uh, uh, appearance in this kind of format. Um, would you say he probably ended up being the big, the big stinker of the group? Yeah, absolutely. I think he just showed that he showed that he um, didn't actually know a lot of the details of, I think, Amazon's business dealings. Uh I'm not familiar with the details of those negotiations. As you said, they're underway right now. 
uh, I predict that the companies will eventually come to an agreement. He also runs a rocket ship company called Blue Origin and owns the Washington Post and has been dealing with other issues involving the Saudis and National Enquirer, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I think particularly on the issue of whether, whether Amazon collects, you know, as we were saying earlier, you know, proprietary data about third party sellers on its platform to then compete with them. He said, I, you know, I mean, he, he told the truth. He said, I can't tell you that this hasn't happened. What, what do you think, Chris? I mean, Amazon has had a huge lobbying arm uh, and operation in DC forever. So they're not new to this. I differ slightly from some of my colleagues about how Bezos did. Um, I thought if his goal was to be humble and not come off as the richest man in the world, he succeeded in that. He, uh, he was uh, sort of deferential and sort of like, I'm not sure. And I think about a couple of things, um, you know, he, he didn't, as Alex noted, he didn't, he didn't seem to have a, a great command of the details on a, several issues. He was asked about he started the Warner Brothers over the fire, HBO Max. And he's like, I don't, I'm not mired in the details of that. I think that that could have worked in his favor. Like he might've, he might've known more and been more confident than he let on. And if that's true, he did better than people might've thought he did. Yeah. Well, that just brings up the next question of where, you know, what are the areas where you think these guys really got themselves into hot water if, you know, legislators or lawyers or anyone reviewing the tape says this is just not true. And we all saw it. they were sworn in before Congress. This is testimony uh, that you could find themselves, you know, in, in kind of hot water, legally speaking. I just with Bezos, I think that that's a really good example because he came into that hearing with sort of a potential cloud of perjury hanging over his head because of the, you know, the previous Amazon executive who said we didn't do collect data. And then he was obviously going to get asked the question, do you collect data? And he skirted that. And I think any way you cut it, it's going to be difficult for him to be uh, charged with perjury or the the other executive charged with perjury because he just he sort of waffled on it in a way that gave him wiggle room and the company wiggle room. Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to be charged with perjury from this, but I think we saw a lot of dancing around the issues and stretching of the truth, particularly with Sundar Pichai and Google around questioning of does Google give preferential treatment to its own products and uh, does its ownership of its own ad system and, you know, kind of it's, it's, you know, inserting of itself into every step of the process as they give it an unfair advantage. Uh, he didn't really address the specifics of that. In other words, the choice Google gave Yelp was let us steal your content or effectively disappear from the web. Mr. Pichai, isn't that anti-competitive? You know, when I run the company, I'm really focused on giving users what they want. We conduct ourselves to the highest standard. Our, one, our story about um, Android's use of third-party app data to compete with them, he really punted on that one as well. Thank you. And just one final series of questions, Mr. Pichai. Did Google ever use its surveillance over web traffic to identify competitive threats? Just like other businesses, we try to understand trends from, uh, you know, uh, data which we can see. There's a lot of antitrust issues with Google on, on multiple fronts. Um, and they have the platform element like Amazon. Are they uncompete? You know, are they unfairly competing on their own platform? Are they an ad monopoly or at least unfairly, you know, controlling their ad system and then all their how they leverage all their other products? Um, so there's a lot there. And then I think also with Tim Cook and Apple, um, you know, he said that <laughs> Apple treats all developers the same. And that's just not true. Some developers are favored over others, though. Isn't that correct? 
That is not correct. From so, just I'll 500. I'll, I'll give you an example. Baidu has two app store employees assigned to help it navigate the app store bureaucracy. Is that true? Uh, I don't know about that, sir. And they showed it during the hearing that it's not true. That Apple gives preferential treatment to certain uh, certain developers like Amazon um, for you know getting around the Apple tax. So um, there was a lot of, I would say, half-truths there uh, with Apple. So my question now is like, you know, it, it, what really can happen next? Do you think that, you know, in its current state, the antitrust law is you know, up to the task of really reckoning with these very modern companies. Well, it's interesting because you had Sensenbrenner sort of launch into his opening statement with the defense of the consumer welfare standard. And sitting behind him and over to his to his left, I think, a little bit was, well, to his right, sorry, was uh, Lena Khan, who is was, as a Yale law student, wrote this powerful treatise on Amazon and antitrust law and saying, calling for changes that a new approach to antitrust law. So right, you know, within 10 feet of each other, you see the two diametrically opposed views of where antitrust law is. And you know, the the Sensenbrenner was defending the status quo and behind him was a young woman who is pushing for a new look at antitrust law because the it the current version of, of law has failed to rein in for better or for worse huge digital platforms like the four companies that were there today oh yesterday sorry and um so i think that what you're going to see is the democrats move forward they've they've done this report they've interviewed the ceos now and now the next step for them is to issue a legislative proposal for revamping antitrust law and then of course that will take several years but in much debate but i think we're on a trajectory to really have a profound review of where antitrust law goes all right guys thanks so much for joining um a pleasure spending this uh yesterday with you remotely uh, as we all watch this and uh plenty more to come thanks for joining thank you I'm joined now by Anissa Gardizi, who reported on an under-the-radar delivery startup called GoPuff and some of the unintended consequences it has brought to some of the neighborhoods where it operates. Anissa, thanks so much for joining us. This was a really fun and fascinating story. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun reporting it. So what is GoPuff? GoPuff started in Philadelphia. And I actually live outside of the Philly area, so I knew about GoPuff for quite a while. And what GoPuff is, is it's a on-demand delivery company, and they stock pretty much what a convenience store would stock. So they have snacks, they have alcohol, and the way their business model works is that they lease warehouses that are nearby neighborhoods, and then they deliver within about 30 minutes. So they have they hire their own independent contractors as drivers, and then the drivers will just go um, back to the warehouse after every delivery. So it's a centrally located warehouse that stocks what a convenience store would stock, and then they just go back and forth delivering whatever people order on their phones. And what has been its growth story? And it hasn't been attracting venture capital. Has it actually shown an ability to? take advantage of this moment and, and, you know, when people are shut indoors, are they actually, uh, you know, is their service growing? 
Yeah, they're definitely, um, they're backed by venture capital and they've raised over $900 million, $750 million of which came from SoftBank. So because of that, they're expanding quite rapidly. Um, last May, they, had, they were in about 70 markets and now they have over 200 facilities that serve over 500 different cities. And they're definitely benefiting from the pandemic because as people try not to go to grocery stores and interact with other people, they can go on their phones and order pretty much everything you could get at a grocery store or convenience store from this app. How is it different from other delivery services? This is such a crowded market. They definitely stand out because of their vertically integrated model. So they own every portion of the process of their delivery and they own all of their inventory. So they stock upwards of 3,000 items in these warehouses, which they purchase. And then when you order, there's no third party or middleman in the picture. It's just their drivers going to their warehouse, delivering to you and then going back to their warehouse. But you have companies like Uber Eats or DoorDash, and their third-party contractors will go to different restaurants to pick up the food, but they don't own the restaurants or own the food. Like they don't, They're not part of the production process. So the vertically integrated model is something that GoPuff uses, but it hasn't really caught on in other services, which are third parties. And what are some of the unintended consequences of this model? Um, you, you wrote about sort of how this is affecting some neighborhoods where GoPuff is operating. The unintended consequence of having this fast delivery is that these warehouses are located either in neighborhoods or right next to neighborhoods. Um, I talked to employees who said when they look for warehouses, they look for spots that are, in, that are within a 15-minute drive of a high number of, of households. So you, they've um, converted former bars, liquor store basements. Sometimes they'll go into an area that doesn't usually get traffic like a neighborhood, and then all of a sudden residents have these GoPuff cars that just travel to and from the warehouses, sometimes 24 hours a day to do their deliveries. So the unintended consequence of having this sort of delivery nearby is that it does bring an influx of traffic because unlike Uber Eats or DoorDash that send cars out to all different restaurants in a neighborhood, GoPuff is centrally located. So all the traffic will go to and from that one warehouse. Tell me about what's happened in Philadelphia, what's happened in Chicago. You, you had a couple examples of sort of how this is playing out. Yeah, so in Philadelphia, the neighborhood, um, it's called Callow Hill. And that was one of GoPuff's first locations. And I actually went to Callow Hill one day last week to sort of check out the scene. And basically what's going on is there's this building and it has a door open. And then right outside of the building on the street, these cars line up almost like a drive through or a carpool. And then about every two minutes, an employee from the building comes out with a white bag, hands it to a driver. They go on their way, make the delivery, and then they just come back and get back in line. So it's like this makeshift drive through on a residential street, which some neighbors have complained about. They've also posted pictures online of GoPuff bags on the streets. Um, I've seen videos of cars speeding down the street trying to make their delivery times. They'll post, some residents have posted pictures of 
pallets of beer and drinks on the sidewalk. You know, in some ways, this is a total shift in sort of how distribution is done and, you know, sort of a, a kind of reimagining what a warehouse is and where it can be. Well, Anissa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Corey. That is today's episode. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, my thanks always to Ariella Markowitz for producing and today's guests, Alex Heath, Chris Stern, Corey Weinberg. I guess he's a guest. He's a co-host uh, and Anissa Gardizi. Thanks so much and have a good weekend. See you back here next time.